Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Credit Karma. Don't pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can get your credit report right now absolutely free. Just visit creditkarma.com save to get started. There are no strings attached and no credit card is required. At creditkarma.com save. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of January 11th, 2016. We'll talk about the post-apocalyptic hellscape slash football game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and Cincinnati Bengals and other happenings on the NFL's wildcard weekend. We'll also be joined by Neil DeMoss of the website Field of Schemes to discuss the maneuvering by the St. Louis Rams, San Diego Chargers, and Oakland Raiders to become the next pro football team or teams to play in Los Angeles. And we'll assess the voting for the Baseball Hall of Fame, where Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza got elected, and Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, and David Eckstein did not. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, who would have voted for David Eckstein if he was I'm eligible. For the scrappy ballot? Scrapster? First ballot. First ballot. The fact that he only got two votes is really disgraceful. He scrapped. He scraped together two votes. He scraped together two votes. A lot of other, lot of other votes were recorded on the scrap paper. He got a lot of votes that were not really counted. Yeah. Because of the intangibles. Right. Votes that yeah. don't show up in the actual voting. Right. They really don't show up in the actual voting. They don't show up. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer when you consider votes that don't exist. Yeah. All right. Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. How are you, Mike? I'm well. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I got enough votes to remain on the ballot for next year. Well, that's a relief. I want to see you drop Sp- off. Speaking of relief, like, Trevor Hoffman. Are we going to get to him? That big question mark? Sure. All right, good. Whatever you want. Let's Lee do Smith, it. Trevor Hoffman. Yeah. All the closers, both of them. Um, we're going to do a special extra episode about Monday night's college football title game between Alabama and Clemson. So look for that on Tuesday. Mike, unfortunately, will be out and about. So it'll be me and Stefan. Brian Curtis will be here. Um, so, Mike, you can listen for that. Yeah. It'll be fun for, it'll be fun for you. There's a chance I'll join you in spirit. Oh, really? Yeah, but also in fact. We'll see. Tune in tomorrow. Or if you're delaying this podcast, as you know, I lied. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No whimsy watch this week. Uh, The Bengals-Steelers game destroyed all whimsy. It was a a dirty bomb that destroyed all whimsy (laughs) within a 5,000-mile radius. But we will have a bonus segment for Slate Plus uh, members this week where we'll talk about our own experiences at Halls of Fame, both the real and the notional. I've been to Cooperstown. I will speak of it. Um, to hear this bonus segment and others like it, 
on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus, and you get a two-week free trial. You must do it. Slate.com slash plus. All right, let's get right to that. How, how would you describe it, Stefan? How could you put it into words? Tire fire? What you saw. It was a dumpster fire that spilled over and set a tire fire on additional fire. Does that seem fair? What did I write? I feel like I might have put a, put a joke in here about this. Nope, no joke. Okay, let's start with uh, the road teams going 4-0 in this weekend's NFL wildcard games. The first time that had ever happened, uh, the Chiefs destroyed the Texans 30 to nothing, winning their 11th in a row. The Packers restored my faith in humanity, beating Dan Snyder's Washington football team 35-18. to In Minnesota, where it was minus six at kickoff, Blair Walsh missed a 27-yard field goal with less than 30 seconds to go, and the Vikings lost to the Seahawks 10-9. You like that, Stefan? Oh, I did not like that. You like that? I don't like that. So Poor kicker. Blair Walsh, according to ESPN Stats and Info, first player in NFL history to kick two field goals of 40 yards or longer in a playoff game played at 20 degrees or below. Blair Walsh, great game. Just depends on, on Would have been the MVP of the game if they gave out MVPs. What, what did he screw up? What did he screw up? There's been a lot of attention on the laces out factor, and I think half of that is because of Ace Ventura. But at least half. It was all that Dan Marino's fault. Everyone knows that. If he had held the ball laces out like he's supposed to, Ray would never have missed that kick. Dan Marino should die of gonorrhea and rot in hell. But, but don't kickers actually do? They do want the laces out. Oh, absolutely. The laces want to be out. I mean, I think it's partly the fact that those laces do protrude. I don't know, an eighth of an inch, whatever, a sixteenth of an inch, and any contact can send the ball going in a weird direction if there's any sort of impediment when your foot meets the ball. I don't think that's what happened. Like a 27-yard field goal is, I mean, it is really, I mean, the kind that I used to make even, you know. <laughs> even at minus six degree. <laughs> um, the kind I used to make dot, 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 right. dot, dot, dot um, In front of, yeah, in front of a packed stadium in minus six degree weather with the, the a playoff game on the line. I mean, so there's the, the pressure factor, there was the cold factor, but what do I think happened? I think he rushed it, and I think that was pressure. You, when you kick a ball, when a right-footed kicker kicks a ball to the left, pulls a ball, typically that means his hips and his, his leg have moved through the ball too quickly. They've gotten there too fast. And Richard so, Sherman almost blocked the previous Richard, one. Yeah, he did. Cam Chancellor also sometimes does the thing where he vaults over the line. And so there is real need to get the ball off as quickly as possible. Yes. And the visual distraction of the laces being in certainly, you know, I don't think that was a factor, but there is a reason that the holder spins the ball. And the holder didn't, Jeff Locke, the punter, really didn't say why he didn't spin it. It's possible, as Chris Cluey um, theorized on Twitter, that he was wearing gloves and he didn't want to risk any sort of tactile problem with this very slick, cold, frozen ball. So he just stuck it down when it came back to him. The snap, I think, might have been off a little bit because of the cold. All the right, rotation enough, may have enough. been different. I could go on. Enough. I think he just screwed up. Enough. The laces, right. the um, laces for... were misplaced on previous kicks that he nailed, though. They were, yeah. yeah and he had no problem. One of, the four, one of the long kicks, the laces were also in. Oh, wait. I found my, sh- I found my joke. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> joke, joke found. Uh, now for Steelers Bengals, which was the shit show in which the shit somehow caught on fire. That's not that funny. No, uh, we'll leave we'll leave it in. It's just uh, the spirit of tra- the spirit of transparency. It's like one of those Red Fox party records. It's, I don't know if it's comically yeah. brilliant, but it changed the genre. Wait, we're go. just having we're having fun. Yeah. We're guys cursing about football. Yeah. Um, Pittsburgh's eighteen sixteen win over Cincinnati featured two highly disturbing helmet to helmet hits. Bengals fans throwing stuff at Ben Roethlisberger as he was carted off the field with a shoulder injury. A Steelers assistant yanking a Bengals player by the dreadlocks. A different Steelers assistant instigating a a skirmish with the Bengals' Pac-Man Jones. That was smart. Leading to a 15-yard penalty that (laughs) set up the Steelers' game-winning field goal. Steelers Um, assistants giveth, Steelers assistants taketh away. They do. Uh, We've talked a lot about the various horrifying things that can happen in an NFL game, Mike, but... I don't think we've ever seen so many happen in such close proximity to each other. Yeah. And 
there weren't I don't know that there were more helmet to helmet or vicious hits than you usually see, but of course everyone was looking and it was the helmet to helmet hit that probably won the game for the Steelers, but if that wasn't good enough, you have the uh, specter of Joey Porter out on the field attending to the clearly concussed receiver Antonio Brown, right? And then Pac-Man Jones, of course, he can't let that slide, right? He's got to get into it. Boom, another 15 yards. There's the game. Throwing water bottles at Ben Roethlisberger, not nice, but I don't know if it puts it in the uh, flaming shit show where the shit catches on fire category. It is the culmination of all these horrible things. Three teams playing each other three times. They really don't like each other. Without this sort of thing, would the phrase love loss just disappear from the vocabulary? Because there's none. There's no love loss between these two. So I actually didn't watch this game uh, live. I recorded it. And there were a lot of people talking about it at the time being like, I'm not going to watch football anymore after this game. I'm not, you know, I've never seen anything like this. This has kind of shaken my faith in the NFL. I mean, I do think that there was this kind of agglomeration of everything that people do not like in a single game. And well, Roger Goodell didn't unfairly suspend someone in the middle of the game. That didn't happen. (laughs) Well, that usually doesn't happen in the middle of a game, but there are going to be lots of fines afterwards. But there's even stuff that's not violent, things like, you know, the excessive celebration penalty on a touchdown that didn't actually happen. Um, But how could you argue that 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 that's not excessive celebration then? If the touchdown didn't happen, it's clearly excessive. (laughs) (laughs) He has a point. Uh, Stefan? Uh, ben Roethlisberger returning to the game not long after he his shoulder was basically crushed by Vontez Burfecht when he got sacked and the replays of that made it look like Burfecht might have sort of writhed a little bit extra um, on top of, uh, of of Roethlisberger. So Roethlisberger can't you know he can't he's holding his arm he can't lift his arm he is carted off of the field they throw a water bottle at him for good measure. It doesn't appear that this athlete should be returning to a football game um, to throw a football. And he miraculously is back 15 or 20 minutes later, unremarked upon by the awful execrable commenters that was Jim Nance and Phil Sims. was that how does a, how does a quarterback do that? How does he come back to the game? Pain pills after the game. Pain pills on the sidelines. Shoulder. Separated shoulder, yeah. Just a couple of pain pills, right? Pain he popped pills. a couple of pain pills, came back. He was clearly shot up with some pain medication toward it all, maybe, I don't know, something that allowed him to return to play. So, I mean, to me, it had a real rollerball effect, this game, a feeling that it was out of control. The referees were not handling it. It almost felt deliberate in some ways. I mean, Perfect was the villain, the true villain of this game. For the hit on Antonio Brown, which was not head-to-head, Mike, it was not helmet-to-helmet, it was shoulder-to-helmet. Yeah. Uh, Brown went up for a pass, the ball wasn't close, there was no way he was going to catch it, there was, a, there was another defender on him, Burfecht is running across the field, and he clearly and deliberately leans in to Brown, whose head is dropping because that's a natural occurrence after trying to reach a ball and he's getting hit by somebody else. Um, so it, it, it the whole thing felt lawless and disgusting, and I think that's where people's instant visceral reaction was coming from. Though I must say, in all of the accounts that I read after the game, it sort of returned to your standard, here's what happened, the refs, the penalties, the Bengals bengalsing, and and that that hatred that I'm never going to watch football again was gone in 24 hours. Not that we should be surprised by that. It's interesting. I don't think this game really was two standard deviations away from the typical violence of an NFL game. I think we all watched it. I think the biggest influencing factor was those announcers that you called execrable. You know, in most cases, Jim Nance is the biggest apologist for whatever sport he's doing, but he really laid into it. People hate Phil Simms. I kind of like Phil Simms. But, you know, he's not a great maybe descriptor of strategy, but he's pretty good with the physical motions of a quarterback. And he rightly said that this was a really rough violent game. You know, and I, I would have I would expect uh, an, an announcing team like uh, Collinsworth and Michaels to own that. So it was a little surprising to me that Nance and Sims said it. And then afterwards, the NFL Today or the CBS show where they had to go through all five guys saying this is the worst I've ever seen, worst I've ever seen, worst I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I don't think it was more than a couple standard deviations away. And if you're the kind of person who says, now I'm giving up on football, I understand sometimes there's the straw that broke the camel's back. But 
this is this is what football is. This is the reality of the violence of football. We just all watched it at the same time. And for as many horrible plays that injured people, there were weird mishaps with interceptions, uh, weird mishaps with fumbles. fumbles. Yeah, that were just as you know. There was a, it was a high variance game. There was a lot it was, to recommend it. Exactly right. Yeah, except for really burf. I mean, people went crazy with Pac Man Jones. No, Pac Man Jones didn't hurt anyone. That was a weird Joey Porter psychological thing. But for the perfect hit, I don't know that this was so much worse than any NFL game I've seen. Well, I think the other uh, hit was was the, the kind that everyone's been talking about. That was sort of the NFL's problem right in your face. It was leading with the crown of the helmet against a, a runner or receiver who had just turned up field, could have been tackled with arms up, shoulder first, Instead, it was head, crown, right into his chin. Yeah. Well, that was Ryan Shazier on Giovanni Bernard. And I thought that hit exactly what you were saying, sort of encapsulated what people's problems are with the NFL and also sort of the the crazy sort of lawless seeming nature of this particular game. So you have the hit itself, which is brutal. Then the Steelers players are celebrating while – Bernard is on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the fact that it wasn't a penalty because he wasn't quote unquote, you know, defenseless technically. Then this leads to a long discussion where Mike Carey, the CBS officiating expert, says that and, you know, Sims and uh, Nance say it. And even if it's technically true that there shouldn't be a penalty because he wasn't defenseless, when you're having that argument for such a long time or that discussion, it makes it seem like you're defending the rules and defending the league. And maybe they changed their tune later, but at least in that kind of five-minute interval, it seemed like they were just more focused on the kind of technical nature of what And I don't think they were entirely the- right either because there is a rule that says you cannot do that regardless of whether the receiver is defenseless or not. Then Jim Nance seems more concerned about the possibility of a fight breaking out. He says nobody wants to see, see that. that. And then it leads to a long replay review where they forensically review whether it was a fumble Ugh. or not. And again, there, I talked about this a couple of years ago when Pierre Thomas gets knocked out cold and in a playoff game, Saints and 49ers. And when they're looking at the replay, it's like they're watching it and looking at it and like, examining it like super closely and not seeing the the only thing that's really important which is this guy just got knocked the fuck out it's just all about okay now as his like neck is jerking back voluntarily like where's the ball and these are kind of if you care about the outcome of the game these are like the priorities that the nfl demands that you have as a broadcaster because as far as like who's going to win or lose is concerned, what it's more important whether you fumbled the ball than whether you know Gio Bernard is conscious. Right, and where the NFL um, exposes itself is through its propaganda and PR. I mean, they have been jamming down the public's throat over the last three, four, five years. Heads up, tackling. We're changing the game. How many times has Roger Goodell something uh, along the lines of the game has never been safer? Well, that game demonstrated, the Bengals-Steelers game demonstrated, that this game is never going to be safe. Well, imagine how much more violent fraud. it would have been. How much more violent it would have been if the game hadn't been safer. Think about that. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Let's um, have a quick uh, chat about Burfecht, because one of the interesting conversations after the game is Marvin Lewis is now 0-7 um, in the playoffs. Reports are that he's not going to get fired. But a lot of people were saying he should get fired because he lost control of his team. They lost because perfect. If he hadn't made that hit and if Pac-Man Jones hadn't gotten that 15-yard penalty, then the Steelers wouldn't have been in fuel goal position and the Bengals would have won. And so this idea that like perfect was out of control because he didn't have like his dad, Marvin Lewis, you know, telling him what to do. But this guy perfect is clearly out of control. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at his history, um, 2013 season, find for hitting a defenseless receiver and striking an opponent in the groin. That was in the same game. 2014, um, two players for the Panthers, Greg Olson and Cam Newton, accused him of intentionally trying to injure them by twisting their ankles after the play was over. He was fined $25,000 for that. Just a few weeks ago, Ben Roethlisberger accused Burfecht of targeting his ankle in the team's regular season uh, game. And then this happens. So 
should the Bengals bear responsibility for having this guy on their team? Well, go back to uh, college and who he is. You know, Kamen is one of the top recruited high school players, just hurt his draft stock every year at Arizona State. And so the Bengals get a bargain in him. I think he led the league in tackling his rookie year or came close. So yeah, he was undrafted. He was the yeah. best steal of that year. So that's the thing, right? I mean, we've so often talked about how you win a championship, teams like Seattle, by getting these bargains. I mean, he's this bargain, but what is the bargain? What is the devil's bargain? And that he has, you know, these these terrible qualities. He's great at football, but he pushes it too far. So what do you do? Cut the guy? I think if you're Marvin Lewis, you do things like, I mean, they showed him lecturing him on the sidelines. Play with your head in the game. Do not take a stupid penalty. It's easy for Boomer Esiason afterwards say, hey, I was a Cincinnati Bengal. All right, that gives you credibility. Uh, that, but Marvin Lewis <laughs> needs to rein his guys in. And Perfect did sign a big new salary after being undrafted, so he's not an exceptional value now, but he is a, you know, important, he's the middle of that defense. I mean, when you have this exceptional talent with, with a great draft uh, status, I don't know that any team cuts him loose. I think you just try to rein him in, and it doesn't work. I mean, that's how he plays. Yeah, volatile personality, incredibly violent game, a history of this kind of behavior. I think you can cut athletes like this. There are a lot of really, really, really good football players out there. And maybe the next linebacker that Cincinnati would sign might not be as good a tackler or as uh, overall superior player as Vontez Perfect. But you know what? He's going to be pretty close. And ownership and front offices and coaches do have the ability to say, this is not worth it. This is not how we want to present ourselves as an organization. This is not the kind of behavior we want to model in our sport. Football's got a problem. And if a problem can be pointed at a particular player in a particular or a series of incidents, well, there are ways to address that. Yeah, and this should be the team decision, not an NFL right. decision. If the Bengals want this guy, then you know this is, this is what you get. Our sponsor this week is Credit Karma, where you can get some help with your New Year's resolutions. You might not get those abs you've been dreaming of, but you can take steps to get your credit score in shape. Credit Karma offers truly free credit reports. No strings attached, no credit card required. And it is truly, truly, truly free. Truly? There are no truly, there are no hidden fees. There's no free trial period, quote unquote, where they'll start charging you afterwards. Free means free. Truly means truly. You don't even need a computer to see your scores. Credit Karma has a free mobile app that works for Apple and Android. And that app, it's truly free. Credit Karma doesn't just show you a score and send you away. They actually break it down so you can see how your actions affect your score. And while you may have heard that checking your credit score can actually hurt your credit score, Credit Karma makes what's called a soft inquiry. And this is a truly soft inquiry. It has no impact on your score. That's how soft it is. To try it out, visit creditkarma.com slash save right now to get your free report. That's creditkarma.com slash save. Last week, three teams, the St. Louis Rams, the San Diego Chargers, and the Oakland Raiders, submitted applications to the NFL to become the first franchise to play in Los Angeles since the 1994 season. Those applications, which will be reviewed at league meetings this Tuesday and Wednesday, include a joint proposal by the Chargers and Raiders to move to a new stadium in Carson, while the Rams want to go to a new facility in Inglewood. All three franchises have been in Los Angeles before, and all three find their current markets and the stadiums in those markets unacceptable. Three-fourths of the league's 32 owners need to vote for a proposal in order for it to get approved. The LA Times reports that each privately financed stadium proposal is believed to have at least the nine votes needed to block the others. So basically, nobody knows what's going to happen. And a lot of rich people are going to be doing a lot of horse trading, perhaps wine trading and jewel trading and private jet trading behind the scenes this week. Joining us now is Neil DeMoss, who's been writing about stadium shenanigans at Field of Schemes for years. Neil, thanks for being with us. Hey, glad to be here. So, Neil, we've got these two um, competing proposals. There's the one in Carson, the one in Inglewood. Can you kind of walk us through what the different ones are and what you're thinking the NFL might be thinking about which one um, is more appealing? Sure. 
So really quickly, um, you have a plan in Inglewood that Stan Kroenke and the Rams want to build, which is going to involve both a stadium and a whole lot of other development on the former racetrack site there. And the cost of that is now, I think the latest number he said was $2.26 billion. So we're talking easily the most expensive football stadium ever built. That's just for the stadium, mind you. The rest of the development would be something else. And then countering that, you have a proposal in Carson that would supposedly be for both the Chargers and the Raiders, and they would share it, be a little cheaper, and they would have to get to share costs. Um, as for what the NFL is thinking, I don't think the NFL is thinking any one thing. I think it depends on which owners you ask and which owners, you know, Kroenke and, and Spanos and Mark Davis are friends with. Um, so I fully expect the meetings this week to look a little bit like the Republican convention with just people, you know, pretty much screaming at each other and trying to work deals behind the, behind the scenes with whoever they can make friends with. Now, the most unseemly part of all of this is, of course, the NFL screwing over these fan bases. So these are teams that all have moved previously. Um, all were in Los Angeles previously. All had been in Los Angeles previously. And at least in the case of San Diego and St. Louis, I mean, St. Louis' stadium is only 20 years old. Uh, San Diego, St. Louis has put forward what seems to be the most viable local proposal that Stan Kroenke has completely dissed. Uh, San Diego seems to have made some good faith efforts to negotiate with the Chargers, but the Chargers don't seem very interested. Oakland is just Oakland because the Davis family still runs that franchise, so it's hard to know what the hell's going on there. The NFL, though, has staged what is effectively a fuck you party for all of these cities. There doesn't seem to be any genuine interest on the NFL's part in having three municipalities that have been tremendous supporters of this league for decades and decades remaining in this I, league. I love that neologism of fuck you party. I think, I think we're going to have to use that one. It was funded by <laughs> fuck you money. Yeah, I mean, from the NFL's perspective, that's their job, right? If you're talking about Roger Goodell and the, and the actual league office, their job is to say to every city in the country that has a team, um, you know, you better step up or else you never know, we might take it away. And to say to every city in the country that doesn't have a team, you better step up or you're never going to get one, right? I mean, that's completely their job. So Roger Goodell just came out on Saturday and said, all of these proposals are inadequate, Right. Um, does it actually mean that the NFL wouldn't accept, say, the St. Louis proposal if they decided not to let the Rams move? No. I mean, they could certainly come back and say, well, we're willing to work with you because of the dark commitment in the Rams' strong fan base and blah, 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 blah. Um, the, the league's job here is to create leverage for the team owners, and they know that. I'm not surprised that the, that the league is kind, of, is kind of doing that, and I'm not surprised that the, that the owners are – um, doing everything they can to say, well, these, you know, these stadium deals that we're being offered in our current cities are, are inadequate um, because, again, they want to have the leverage to do whatever they can. Um, the question is going to be what actually gets decided. Which proposals would soak the taxpayers the most? Um, St. Louis, just because it's the, the got the most, the most money involved. Um, you know, they're looking at, I think it's about $470 million worth of cash and tax breaks that would be going to uh, the Rams. And it's a little unclear because there's some details that aren't worked out yet. Um, and, uh, you know, it involves things like allowing the team not only not to pay property taxes, but also to get sales taxes on sales at football games kicked back to the team. Okay. Um, so that's the most expensive one right now. So, of course, it's the one at the end. You've got to do that. Best, right? <laughs> that's a no-brainer, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's total groundbreaking, though, right? I mean, you know, the, this, it came out where um, the city was saying, well, we'll let you out of property taxes, but, you know, we're going to use the the sales taxes on money spent at the game as a way of paying the city's costs, which is dubious to start with because, you know, every economist says money spent at a football game isn't new tax money. It's just money that would have been spent somewhere else on something else anyway. Um, and then the league came in and said, oh, no, 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 that's our money. You know, we don't actually want sales, the city to get any sales tax money on money that's spent at our stadium, and the city caved. Um, so, you know, St. Louis has actually given them a lot of, of money, especially when you're offered them a lot of money, especially when you consider that uh, it's a stadium that's only 20 years old that they're replacing. But again, Stan Kroenke really doesn't want to be in St. Louis for some reason. And that's another question as to why he is so desperate to get out. And the NFL as a whole and the owners as a whole aren't ready to say no to him. No, you've got to stay put in St. Louis. So again, you know, that this has nothing to do with what the offer is from St. Louis. This is just all about 
Dan Crockey still has support of people who say, we want to let him move, so we're going to tell St. Louis, nope, sorry, not good enough. I, that's why I support the Rams going to Los Angeles. The Rams aren't longtime residents of St. Louis. The taxpayers of Missouri who don't care about the Rams shouldn't have to pay for the Rams. St. Louis is a declining market in terms of uh, t- they're, they're still in the top 20 in metropolitan statistical areas, but the city itself has been losing population for years. They're just not so many, aside from sentimentality, they're just not so many, if one team moves, there's not so many great arguments for why it shouldn't be St. Louis, in my opinion. I have one quick point and then uh, a question. Um, you know, with St. Louis and San Diego and Oakland, I think, you know, Stefan's right that these fan bases are getting screwed. And the flip side of that is that there's no indication that people in Los Angeles really want a team. And so it's like the double fuck you party of like, we're going to screw places that want a team by moving them to a, a place that fans couldn't care less. And then the thing that I find fascinating about this, Neil, is the notion, and economists have talked about this, that Los Angeles is more valuable to the NFL as a place where you can extort stadiums out of cities and threaten to move to Los Angeles than it would actually be with a team there. Um, And so I want to get your opinion on that. Like, would the NFL be losing this valuable bargaining chip when they finally cash it in and there's a team there? Yeah, that's the fascinating thing about the NFL and how it works differently from other sports, right, is that in any other sport, moving to Los Angeles would be a complete no-brainer, right? Because you go there and immediately you sign a huge cable deal for your team that is going to more than pay for any cost of a new stadium or anything like that. But, of course, there's no local cable deals in the NFL, right? All the money is shared anyway. So it doesn't matter that much whether you play in L.A. or St. Louis or someplace else. Yes, you get some more... But it still works as a threat. It's, it's, right, Well, but that's the thing. And then, and then from the NFL's perspective... Do they really care whether there's a team in Los Angeles or not? Probably not. I mean, again, you can get a little bit more ad revenue and stuff like that. But um, people watch the NFL in Los Angeles even without a team, right? Maybe even more than would watch the Rams, because then they'd be stuck watching the Rams instead of getting to watch the best game of the week. So from both the NFL's perspective as a league and from individual owners' perspective, L.A. really is not all that valuable, which is why it's taken 20 years to get a team back there, even though it's the second largest city in the country. What, Neil, would you say are the odds that a city at some point would just say, in this case, to Stan Kroenke, all right, you don't want to be here. You have issued a 40-page report mocking our region, not just our city, but our region and our ability to support a professional football team. We don't want you. Your lease is canceled. You're out of here. Go find somewhere else to play. We'll We'll get another team because there's always other teams willing to move if we make this offer of a stadium, of a billion-dollar stadium, to some other owner. That's somewhat what Oakland is saying, right? Mayor Libby Schaaf there has said, we're Mm -hmm. not going to put up a whole lot of money. Um, You know, she's not saying... Don't let the, bo- let the door hit you in the butt on the way out because it doesn't win you any friends among football fans. But she's saying, look, you know, this is we, we can't afford it, and we're not going to give you any money. And uh, and if you want to talk about a stadium with private money, we're willing to talk about that. But otherwise, sorry. I think that for whatever reason, St. Louis politicians are not most St. Louis politicians, I should say, are not feeling like they're in that position. The problem there, of course, is that if they do need to get a replacement team, they're probably going to have to make a similar offer to, say, the Raiders, right, if they want to get a team to replace the Rams. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we're, they, the cities are over a barrel to some degree because there are, you know, especially in the NFL, right, where you can put a team in Green Bay and it's still successful because of that, that shared television money, you know, there are plenty of cities out there that could host a, an NFL team as long as they had a stadium. And so you've got to worry about competing on that basis. So I, I think... Well, London, London is your new stalking horse, too, right? London is your well, new stalking horse. London is your new stalking horse. I think London is a great stalking horse because no team is ever going to want to move there because from an individual owner's perspective, I mean, it's great for the league, right? You would actually build your market out into Europe, theoretically at least, but for an individual owner, you want to have to be the one dealing with all those, you know, the terrible travel schedule and, uh, and all that. So... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, if I'm an owner, that if I own a Premier League team, I'm not. I'm thinking that's not a terrible idea. Because you can uh, like bundle it with your in your stadium. Maybe, maybe sure. it's a possibility that somebody would do it. And you know, it's it's. Uh, uh, I think it makes more sense for a an expansion team than for an existing owner. An existing owner isn't going to even Jacksonville, you know, or somebody like that. Do you really want to pick up and, and move from the U.S. from anywhere in the U.S. to London? 
Um, I could see an ex- them giving an expansion franchise to London and, and to probably, like you said, to an existing Premier League owner. So eventually. Um, but, you know, the, the thing about the NFL, like, you can have innumerable stocking horses. You know, there's London, there's San Antonio, there's, you know, I don't know, Birmingham. You could put, pretty much throw anything out there. Um, and I think they will be sad not to have Los Angeles to, uh, to drop as the threat every two seconds. Um, but they'll deal. And the owners want uh, this to happen, the other owners, because there's a $550 million relocation fee. Um, and won't that be shared by all the owners collectively? Yeah. Um, it's not clear whether the $550 million relocation fee will go to the owner's pockets or if it will go to some kind of league stadium fund or you know anything else like that. But, but yeah, Concussion it research. definitely ends up getting, getting shared. So. I mean, and that's why they set the price so high, I'm sure, you know. It's like, well, if you guys really want to move, and there's three of you want to move, and we're only going to approve two at most, um, let's start getting the bidding up, right, um, and see who, who really is willing to, uh, you know, so interested in moving that they're willing to cough up this kind of money. Um, you know, $550 million is just a number they came up with, right? So. Yeah, I would just, a uh, couple points I'd like to make. We talk about the attractiveness of, of Los Angeles as a market because of the size of the city. Los Angeles is not one city. You know, no one from Pasadena is going to be trekking down to Inglewood or Carson. So people just don't travel in Los Angeles because the roads are so clogged. The Ram Stadium, which is the one in Inglewood, is th- there's one thing that jumps out at me. I think they're saying it's a 70,000 seat uh, arena, expandable to 100,000, 30,000 standing room only. That seems like a recipe for disaster. Whereas the other one, the one in Carson, is actually right now planned uh, to sit atop a municipal dump and there will be all this uh, cleanup involved in trying to get the fine people of Los Angeles not to choke when they see football. So neither, none of these are, uh, I guess, without their frictions. And my last point would be that if two teams do move, then you have two new stalking horses. St. Louis is going to want another franchise. San Diego is probably going to try to have one, too. Yeah, except I don't think San Diego is getting a new one if Los Angeles has two teams. I think that they'll say right. Southern California is set, so St. Louis will want one. Yeah, no, there, there's, there's plenty of, of uh, ways for the NFL to, to work this. I think really right now the problem is, like I said, it has nothing to do with toxic waste dumps or who has the best market or who has the best fan base or anything like that. It really is just about getting those 24 votes together in the room. And for better or for worse, that's what's going to be deciding this, which is why I think everybody assumes whoever moves to Los Angeles, it's not going to be the Raiders because Mark Davis is always number one on the list of guys in the NFL with the least friends in the room. All right, Neil, you'll be writing about this at uh, your website, Field of Schemes, and we'll be uh, watching and checking it out as the weeks develop. Thanks so much. Sounds good. Looking forward to seeing what happens. Last week, Ken Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza became the latest enshrinees to Baseball's Hall of Fame, with Griffey getting the highest percentage of the vote ever at 99.3, falling just short of the required 75% to get elected were Jeff Bagwell, 716 Tim Raines at 69.8, and Trevor Hoffman at 67.3. Further down the ballot, support for Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds grew uh, to 45.2 and 44% respectively. They were both in the 30s before. But as the New York Times' Benjamin Hoffman points out, what's interesting is that both players actually got fewer votes in 2016 than they did in 2015. The reason they got a higher percentage is that the Baseball Writers uh, Association of America, which votes for the Hall of Fame, they purged voters who hadn't covered the sport for more than 10 years, reducing the electorate by 109 voters. So Griffey was um, on 437 out of 440 ballots this year. Uh, The removal of a voting block that tended to be crustier, maybe grouchier, less analytically inclined, it helped sabermetric darlings like Tim Raines as well as the uh, druggies like Bonds and Clemens. Though the fact that the vote totals for Bonds and Clemens didn't increase might indicate that they've hit their ceilings well short of what it will take to get into the hall. Uh, Mike, what did you see in the voting patterns this year? I was a little surprised that Piazza got in because I knew of the crustiness, but it would seem that the knock against him is something that is unprovable and maybe transcends 
old age and logic, but I guess not. I guess uh, people just looked at how great he was as a catcher. And I got to say, as a Met fan, I was, I was surprised by how much I cheered the decision. I know on this show we don't talk about Hall of Fames that much, but sports fans do like them. And I was fine not talking about Hall of Fames all those years. But when Mike Piazza made the Hall of Fame, I thought it was very good. The other interesting thing I would say, oh, by the way, if you look up war, do you know Jeff Bagwell's above Joe DiMaggio? That might say something about war. Anyway, the other thing I would say is there is an analogy to actual voting, political voting, which is we talk about the electorate changing on things like gay marriage, or we talk about people gradually changing their mind or prejudices slipping away. That actually doesn't happen. What happens more often is that the cranky old people die. So that's how it works with real life. When the electorate changes its mind, yeah, the electorate, this thing called the electorate, because the people holding on to the all say, the old say, anti-gay marriage sentiment, just die or get pushed out or younger people swell the ranks so that they're less important. So as goes Hall of Fame voting, so goes uh, the Cruz candidacy. <laughs> well, the Tim Raines thing I find fascinating because Jonah Carey... Um, who wrote a book about the Expos and is a huge Tim Raines fan and is also very smart about analytics and knows who's a good baseball player and who isn't, has been stumping for Raines for a while now. And it's the message seems to be getting through. This is a guy who I think is like the number one player in the 80s by war, um, was amazing at stealing bases, just a great all-around player, got on base a lot. And so I think there's some mind-changing going on. But the thing that's interesting about him is the guy named Ryan Thibodeau has put together a spreadsheet of all the public ballots. So you're not required if you're a voter to release your ballot, but a lot of people do. And there's now 66% of people have released their ballots. And Tim Raines is on 76% of those public ballots. And so if the voting was restricted to just people who've you know released them, then he would be in the Hall of Fame. But Reigns has by far the biggest disparity between public and private ballots. He's only on 58% of the private ones. And so I think it is probably the older voters, the crustier voters, who are less inclined to uh, release their ballots publicly. So what would, be the just crust, that, what would be the crusty case against him, though? Crusty guys like home his runs? counting stats aren't that high. He didn't hit a lot of home runs. He wasn't, yeah. I think, ever like, uh, he wasn't an MVP. He didn't have a lot of RBIs. And two other things. He wasn't Ricky Henderson, who overshadowed him when it came to base stealing during their careers. He wasn't a playoff star. He wasn't a playoff star. And he did drugs. He did cocaine and publicly admitted That's that in the early yeah. 1980s. Crack vials in his pockets. Yes. The other thing that we're seeing is that I think younger voters, voters that have sort of come of age in the steroid and analytics era, vote for more players to get in. There is less of this arbitrary, well, he needs to percolate before he's a member of the Hall of Fame. I can't vote for anybody on the first ballot. Ken Griffey, he's got to wait like everybody else. So I think there's less of that now where you have fewer if – if you look at Ryan Thibodeau's spreadsheet – you see a few of the publicly declared ballots have one, two, or three uh, nominees, that names that were checked off. Whereas I think with, with, with younger reporters, I'd say 50 and under um, in terms of the age bracket, you see more 7, 8, 9, 10 uh, names getting nominated. And that is going to definitely, I think, push players like Reigns, who's got one more year of eligibility. It certainly helped players like uh, Schilling and Mike Mussina, players who there might be more of a borderline argument about their numbers, the sort of traditional numbers, but they're going to get the benefit of the doubt in terms of, hey, if we're going to vote for eight or nine or 10 guys, I'm going to vote for one of them. Yeah, there's a max of 10 that you're allowed to vote for on each ballot. And a lot of people are pushing for that max to be eliminated or for it to be raised to 11 or 12. And that is a huge disconnect between a lot of the voters. Murray Chass, who compared people who like... Former New York Times business and baseball writer. Yeah, who compares people who like baseball analytics to ISIS. is like, why would you possibly vote for that many players? Um, that's like voting for ISIS. No, it's... Um, why would you Why would you evaluate on a player by player basis if he should get into the Hall of Fame? That's insane. Yes, Crazy. I think he should get in. Nope, you got to stop saying that after you said it for the first ten guys. So there is a kind of, I think, wide ranging, long standing belief among both fans and journalists that 
the Hall of Fame has been watered down and that it's not the Hall of Very Good, even though the Hall of Very Good is a thing that Stefan's talked about before. But we should only keep it to guys like Ken Griffey, who is a no-doubt player who we all, when we were watching him during his career, were like, that's a Hall of Famer. But if you actually look, and a couple of people have done this, if you divide into baseball into eras in the past like 10 or 20 years, the perception is like, oh, we're letting too many guys in. There are way fewer guys in the Hall of Fame from this most recent era than any other era. Most Uh, recent era, by the way, that has more baseball players also. (laughs) Yeah, so it's less players... As a percentage, it's it's uh, it's way way less. Yeah, and so I think there's just more veneration of guys like Joe DiMaggio rather than guys like Jeff Bagwell because they played back in the day, and we just think everything that's older is better. But also, it's you know has to do with steroids and designated hitter. Like people don't want to vote for Edgar Martinez or maybe closers. It's just like refusal to acknowledge the ways that the game has changed, and that's reflected in these voting patterns. And there are going to be players, I think, like Edgar Martinez and Lee Smith and Trevor Hoffman, even potentially, who don't get in because maybe in you know six, seven, eight years, those biases will be out of the voting block, and they will be more, um, more appreciated. But in the meantime, what we're going to see, and we saw this this year, the numbers like you mentioned, Josh, for Bonds and um, Clemens. for Clemens went way up. The percentage. The percentage, right. Um, McGuire, no. Sosa, no. So there are still these differentiations being made among the PED or supposed or alleged PED players. And I don't quite know how to parse that, Mike. Do you have any thoughts on why, like, McGuire stays real low and Sosa stays real low? Um, McGuire's been rehabilitated. He's back in the game as a hitting coach. Bonds is back in the game as a hitting coach. Yeah, I think it has to do with heuristics, which is they want to hold, you know, the voter, whatever the imagined crusty old voter wants to hold on to some idea like, well, we have to draw the line somewhere with steroids. And that's somewhere. If you're going to draw it anywhere, draw it with McGuire and you tell yourself, I mean, people don't even understand what steroids do. And they say, oh, in this era, it was so hard to be a pitcher. We got to give him a little extra boost. More pitchers did steroids than, well, I don't know if more, but I think it's been proved that as a percentage of roster composition, more pitchers have taken PEDs. Anyway, people don't understand. These crust, same crusty old guys don't understand what steroids even do to the body. It, there's some. There's so many weird things with all the stuff you were saying. First of all, uh, I think that it's like, most ballots do have eight and a half names on it. So it's not as if everyone's using every slot, but it would seem that um, if you just allow... But as recently, Mike, as five years ago, it was more like five or six names. Yeah, yeah. So it is growing, which would seem to argue with just give people an up-down vote. That also seems to argue there are more really good players. Then usually we're talking about Lee Smith and Trevor Hoffman. As the guys from the uh, Effectively Wild podcast were pointing out, explain how Trevor Hoffman gets twice as many votes as Lee Smith. They are the exact same guy. Their qualifications are the exact same thing. They once held the record for most saves, and now they don't explanation people like Trevor Hoffman a little bit more. And then when it comes to designated hitters, fine, they didn't play the field, but what if they did play the field not so well? I mean, Piazza was a good was a bad catching catch. He was a terrible throwing catcher. Fine, he could do other things behind the plate better, but throwing's really important. So he was this terrible catching catcher, but the fact that he was a catcher was like, look, he did so much more than any other catcher did. Yes, but being a catcher hurt his team or, you know, his inability to catch. So the way we think about the defensive or not, or other, except if you're a great defensive player, Ozzie Smith, the way we think about the defensive aspect makes very little sense. Very little sense. All right, let's end with um, a player who will no longer be appearing on your Hall of Fame ballot. He got less than the required 5% threshold. Stefan. David Eckstein. David Eckstein. And we mentioned up top, he got two votes, which is remarkable. I mean, come on. David Eckstein got two votes for the Hall of Fame. On Ryan Thibodeau's spreadsheet, one of those voters is identified. He is Chaz Scoggins of the Lowell Sun. The rest of his ballot was okay. Bagwell, Bonds, Clemens, Griffey, Hoffman, McGuire. Progressive. Piazza, Reigns, Schilling, Eckstein. (laughs) You know why? Because the numbers didn't reveal Eckstein's greatness, his Hall of Fameness. And that's just an abomination. I I think anybody that voted for David Eckstein should be removed from, I don't know, press boxes. For the low side. 
<laughs> from the Lowell Sun. So one person on Twitter posited that the reason that Chaz Scoggins of the Lowell Sun, who wrote a fantastic column in 2012, excoriating analytics, he got rid of his uh, his membership in in Saber, the Society for American Baseball Research, which he had joined in 1979. So what's the what's the theory of, of of gamins? The theory is that Eckstein played his first season in the minors in Lowell. That's a as convincing a theory as any. Lowell Spinners is that it? Yeah, Lowell Spinners. Spinners. They might not have been the spinners when Exxon started, but right. yeah. I don't know. Maybe they were. Chaz Goggins is in the all-spin zone. It's only spin. Only spin. All right, let's move on to afterballs. Seven players got zero votes in their first year of eligibility for the Hall of Fame. Randy Wynn, Troy Gloss, Mike Lowell, Luis Castillo, Mike Hampton, Brad Osmus, and Mark Grudzelanek. Mark Hampton got a big contract once, though. He did. He did. He chose, he chose Colorado because of the school system, he said. Not that huge... <laughs> Huge contract. He was a first short ballot. For, for a power pitcher. He was a short guy. I'll give him credit for his shortness. Mm-hmm. First, first ballot in the school system Hall of Fame in Colorado. Um, we are obviously not going to go with Mike Hampton. We're going to go with Grudzelonix this week because that's the best name of the bunch by far. Mike, what's your Grudzelonix? Well, speaking on the Hall of Fame theme, Mike Piazza, who we've talked about, he overcame rumors that he maybe did drugs to get into the Hall of Fame. No, not the bad kind of drugs, the good kind of drugs that help you at baseball. Those are the ones that don't let you do. But, you know, the other rumor he overcame, or at least brushed aside, it would have been nicer if he full-throatedly endorsed it with a not that there was anything wrong with that. But there was that rumor that he was gay. The rumor did not pan out. But you know what it did pan out in terms of a song by the Scottish group Bell and Sebastian Piazza, New York catcher. Now, I like the band Bell and Sebastian. It's not a band I you would think I would like. Like my Pandora music genome would not predict that I'd like a band like Bell and Sebastian. Although I do like Scottish bands like Frightened Rabbit. I don't know. I think maybe Bell and Sebastian's a little on the... Uh on the gentle side for me. But there are some songs I like, and I don't know. And I liked the band before I was even aware that they had Piazza New York Catcher as a song. So the lyrics to Piazza New York Catcher have a couple of references to Mike Piazza, who was the catcher for the New York Mets. San Francisco's calling us, the Giants and Mets will play. Piazza New York Catcher, are you straight or are you gay? San Francisco's calling us, the Giants and Mets will play. Piazza New York Catcher, are you straight or are you gay? We hung about the stadium, we got no place to stay. We hung about the tenderloin and tenderly you tell about the saddest book you ever read. It always makes you cry, the statue's crying too and Willie May. And then later on in the song he says, The catcher hits for 318 and catches every day. The pitcher puts religion first and rests on holidays. So... If you were wondering, as I was, hey, which specific game were they talking about where Mike Piazza played in San Francisco and then went to the Tenderloin? Well, don't worry, guys. Fangraphs is on it. Karsten Sistuli, who I like, his Twitter avatar is a Lebanese flag, thus explaining what the derivation of Sistuli is. And he goes through all the facts that, owing to references in the song, we know that This had to have been written between May 22nd, 2002, when Piazza's sexuality was on the cover of the New York Post, and October of 2003, when the album was released. Then they went back to see when the Mets were playing the Giants, and they figured it either had to be August 20th through 22nd of 2002, or May 15th, between May 15th and 18th of 2003. But then when Carson Sestouli went to try to figure out which specific day did he carry a 318 average, either career or season, into that game against the Giants, he came up bleh. Piazza never had a 318, and Carson Sestouli then decided that it was uh, perhaps inaccurate or at least a term of art. I have another theory. Let's listen to the lyric again. The catcher hits for 318 and catches every day. The pitcher puts religion first and rests on holidays. Now, the applicable averages at the time, in season, 281. Career average, 322. Think about the meter of 322. The catcher hits for 322. No, you need ba-ba-ba. You need three syllables, 318. So it could have been 319 or 316, but they couldn't go 
with 322, and they certainly couldn't go with 281. By they, I mean both Bell and Sebastian. There's other precedent for this, for musical acts misremembering or misreporting sports things. In the Lou Reed song, The Day John Kennedy Died, it's all about being a student at Syracuse University, an upstate bar watching football on a television. The announcer breaks in, announces the tragedy. There was no Syracuse game. College football was not played while John Kennedy was shot in Dallas. So sometimes either memory or meter dictates that singing stars and sports do not mix well. Oh, by the way, Bell and Sebastian have another sports connection. They have a uh, song called The Stars of Track and Field, and it's one of those songs that inspired an entire another band, Stars of Track and Field. I have no, I cannot report if they accurately reported the time of those stars of track and field. Stefan, what's your Gredzelanik? Last year, Dan Barry of the New York Times wrote about a Russian heavyweight named Magomed Abdusalamov, or Mago, who was brain damaged and partially paralyzed in a November 2013 fight at Madison Square Garden. HBO pay-per-viewers watched Mago take 312 punches in 10 rounds, his face bloodied, his orbital bone cracked, his brain bleeding, a stroke on its way. Barry's story chronicled his care. He followed up with a piece on Friday that drawing on interviews conducted in an investigation by New York State grippingly recreates what happened in the immediate aftermath of that fight. It is a gruesome and, given that this is boxing, predictable TikTok. Mago gets about 15 minutes of medical attention after the fight. The doctor sees no sign of neurological damage. He says Mago didn't complain of a headache. Mago's brother says he did. An ambulance isn't summoned. Mago leaves the garden and starts vomiting. He and his entourage take a cab to St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. At least you might say Mago didn't die. But when he does, his name can be added to the definitive chronicle of death by boxing, a list called Death Under the Spotlight, the Manuel Velasquez Collection. I read about the list in a post last month on the NewYorker.com by Eben Pindic. Manuel Velasquez was a government clerk who, infuriated by the ring beatings that left a friend of his hospitalized for life in the mid-1900s, began documenting the sport's brutality. Velasquez searched newspapers and boxing magazines and other sources. He wrote to Congress trying to have the sport banned. Velasquez died in 1994, and his collection eventually wound up with a martial arts lover, Joseph Svinth, who took up where Velasquez had left off. Svinth Svinth writes on his website that he's neither for nor against boxing. On the positive side, he says, boxing is good exercise and it fulfills many youngsters' dreams. On the negative side, people get hurt while boxing and injured people sometimes die. I cannot do anything about the business of boxing. On the other hand, perhaps I can do something about honoring those who lost more than dreams and money to boxing. The Manuel Velasquez Collection now honors 2,036 people who died while boxing. The first death is that of Job Dixon, who died fighting Richard Teeling in 1725. The last is Charles Smith, an 18-year-old from Minnesota, who died in 2011 while sparring at a church-based boxing club. Sphinx has created all kinds of charts and graphs. Most deaths in a year, 39 in 1932. Most deaths in a decade, 233 in the 1920s. Most deaths in a city, Tokyo. Most deaths in a country, the United States. But Sphinx, overwhelmed by the research, hasn't updated the site since 2011. But here's one that can be added when he gets around to it. Hamza al-Jami, 19 years old, Dearborn, Michigan, December 22nd, 2015. In his first professional fight against Anthony Taylor at St. Peter's and Paul Ukrainian Orthodox Banquet Center in Youngstown, Ohio, Aljami was knocked down three times in the opening round. He collapsed at the bell of the fourth and final round. The 114-pound flyweight died three days later from bleeding on the brain. Before that fight, Aljami had written on Instagram, My name is Hamza. I'm 19 years old. I'm not perfect because that doesn't exist, but I'm willing to be near that category. I'm a boxer, going to be the best in my division. Hold that against me. I love looking into my religion and learning. Again, I'm not perfect, and I also love the business world, so yeah. A local TV station reported that the head of the Ohio Athletic Commission said that Aljami's death was an unfortunate incident that rarely occurs. Josh, what's your Grudzelonic? On Friday, the LSU football team got a verbal commitment from Devin White, a running back who's ranked as the 99th best high school player in the country by ESPN. I hadn't been following <clears throat> White's recruitment. I didn't know much about the guy, so I read a couple stories about his signing, as 
an LSU fan, this is my duty. The Shreveport Times mentioned, quote, White's run-ins with the law, incidents both he and his mother said should make him smarter under an even brighter spotlight. It didn't mention what the run-ins or the incidents were. The lead of the Times-Picayune story was LSU coaches stuck with Devin White from his freshman season through this winter's ups and downs and down to the wire. Later, it mentioned two arrests and said that White and his mother didn't shy away from those missteps on Friday. But again, the story didn't mention what the missteps were and what White was arrested for. So I thought that was really weird. Two stories about the same guy on the same day that mentioned run-ins with the law and allegations, ups and downs, arrests, missteps, but didn't enumerate what those ups and downs and arrests and missteps were. Okay, so what were the arrests? The New Orleans advocates, Ross Dellinger, who did include the information in his story about White signing with LSU, writes that he was last arrested December 31st for misdemeanor charges of careless operation of a motor vehicle and flight from an officer. And on November 20th, he was arrested and charged with misdemeanor carnal knowledge of a juvenile. Misdemeanor carnal knowledge of a juvenile is committed when a person who is 17 or older has sex with consent with a person who is 13 or older but younger than 17. The sex was consensual, according to police, the Shreveport Times reported. And I'll break out of the quote here to note that the girl was reportedly 14 years old and White was 17. Dellinger concludes by saying the troubles didn't affect White's recruitment. He chose LSU among a host of other offers, including Arkansas, Alabama, Florida State, and Ole Miss. So you can come away from that thinking this guy is a criminal and a sex offender or that you really don't know what happened, that there's a very wide range of possibilities. But no matter what you think, you should be given as a news consumer whatever information is out there so you can form your own opinion rather than just read about it in coded language like ups and downs and arrests and missteps. And this is particularly relevant information, not just about this guy, but because Jeremy Hill, he fumbled in the game for the Bengals against the Steelers, former LSU running back. He um, was offered a scholarship to LSU out of high school. They withheld it for a year. He enrolled a year later because he pleaded guilty to carnal knowledge of an underage girl, reportedly pressured a 14-year-old girl to perform oral sex on him in a school locker room. So there is a history here with LSU and Louisiana high school running backs and carnal knowledge of an underage girl. So I emailed uh, Luke Thompson, who wrote the story that appeared in the Shreveport Times, and Jarrett Roser, who wrote the one in the Times-Picayune. And I wanted to see if I had missed something, to hear what their thinking was. Both of them uh, write about high school sports and recruiting, and both of them did write back and explain their thinking. And they did actually make me realize that I had missed a couple of things. Um, Thompson told me he thought that his readers knew White's whole story, which the Shreveport Times has covered extensively. Thompson had written about White's arrest in a story the day before. He'd written the breaking news story about White's first arrest. One of the paper's columnists had written a piece going after um, attacking White's high school for allowing him to play in a game the day he was arrested. And Roser um, from the Times-Picayune was tasked, he told me, with writing two stories and posting a video immediately after White announced his decision at a press conference at his high school um, he also noted that his paper had covered the arrest extensively. Okay, a couple of thoughts here. As a writer circa 2016, it's a mistake to assume that your readers will know the background of what you're writing about. Like me, a huge number of people get their news on Twitter, on Facebook. When somebody signs with the school that you root for, you're going to Google it. You're going to look on Twitter. And readers are going to be coming in sideways to stories without knowing the prior history and you have a responsibility to explain to those readers what's going on, even if you've written about it the day before, even if your paper has covered it before, um, and not just to say that there were missteps and run-ins. Number two is that guys who write about sports are not trained as crime reporters, and yet they're often asked to write about athletes when they're accused of crimes, when they commit crimes. Um, not that all athletes are criminals, but it happens. It comes up a lot. Um, and when newspapers and websites are asking fewer people to do a lot more, for example, writing two stories and posting a video in the 15 minutes after somebody announces where they're going to high school, it's not shocking that the results are not always going to be award-winning stuff and that, you know, stuff like this is going to get left out that doesn't have to do with the, you know, jersey choice. So I think this was not any kind of conspiracy to keep a football star's rap sheet out of the newspapers of the state of Louisiana. There's a couple guys who are trying their hardest and made what I believe were mistakes, but ones that I can understand given the circumstances. And thus concludes 
this edition of Josh Levine's Kinder, Gentler Media Criticism Hour. Thank you, Stefan. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. The catcher hits for 318 and catches every day. The pitcher puts religion first and rests on holidays. He goes into cathedrals and lies prostrate on the floor. He knows the drink affects his speed, he's praying for it. Doorway back into the life he wants in the confession of the bench. Life outside a diamond is a wrench. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.